Welcome to uh, Bethany Community. It's a, it's a joy to be here. It always is. Uh, each year we get a chance to do this at least once, and it's uh, just a highlight. It's uh, j- just to uh, first see familiar faces as well as new faces. That's awesome. And of course, just to be in relationship with the, for the gospel in our community. At uh, Bethany over in Peoria slash Edwards, we are, we've just been really proud of you in a real good biblical sense of how you have shown light here in the, in the midst of a year that's been very difficult and continuing, but to see how you've been faithful to the Lord, to lift up Christ, and that's just been a delight to be part of that through our relationship with you. We have done a number of things together uh, over, the, over the course of these years since you've been, since you've been planted as a church. Well, today in our worship, we're going to be looking at Matthew 18. We're going to look at God's call to forgive others. Uh, It's such a very practical subject. I believe it's something that, a subject that every one of us will have a practical impact in our lives as we listen to the really weighty teaching of God's Word together. So if you have your Bibles, there should be uh, Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Let's stand out of honor to God today. As we read scripture together, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom here, and the disciples have a number of questions. He he taught that if uh, someone sinned against you, you go, and if they uh, if they repent, that you forgive them. And so that prompts a question in Peter's heart and mind. So Peter comes up and he says to him, "Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times." And Jesus said to him, "I, I don't say to you seven times." But seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity to him, for him, the master of that servant released him. And forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt." So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. May God encourage us through his word today. Please be seated and let's pray and ask that God would apply his word to us. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that you have forgiven us through Jesus, this huge, insurmountable, unfathomable debt. Lord, your mercy It's infinite, it is new every morning, great is your faithfulness. Father, I pray for your Spirit's power to uh, uh, strengthen and use the teachers and the leaders of the youth at camp. I pray for your Spirit's working in their hearts 
as well as in the leaders' hearts, Father, that uh, you would redeem those who have yet to bow their knee to you, that they would see your glory and learn to fear you and, and learn to enjoy uh, your salvation. Father, I pray that you would also work in the hearts of those teenagers who already have faith, Father, that you would deepen it and that you would ready them for a world that is growing deeper and deeper in darkness and rebellion. So, Father, prepare them for courageous deeds that you have prepared for them beforehand to accomplish. And, Father, I pray, that, again, that you'd work in our midst. Soften us, Lord, as resentment and bitterness often hardens our heart. We acknowledge that. Soften us with the grace of your forgiveness, that we might uh, enter deeper into the forgiveness that you offer us in Christ and thus be able to forgive others even as you have forgiven us. So, Father, we commit our way to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a dozen or so students huddled in the hallway of their high school in Paducah, Kentucky, doing something they did every day before school. They were huddling together for prayer. They closed with an amen, and they began to move toward their classes when, pop, 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 a 14-year-old classmate walked up to this group and began unloading a 22 caliber pistol into the prayer circle. He took careful aim, looking at each person before he pulled the trigger. When it was over, three teens lay dead, five critically injured. As the story unfolded, it was discovered that the victims had done nothing to provoke this young man. In fact, several of them had reached out to befriend him. You can imagine how incensed these families might have been in this act of senseless violence. Yet, as the media allowed the story to unfold, there was something that amazed them, amazed them about the victims, made them about, amazed them about the victims' families, and that something was forgiveness. Forgiveness. No one spoke with bitterness or vengeance in their voice. In fact, one of the injured girls was 15-year-old Melissa Jenkins, and she lay in her hospital bed with the full knowledge that her spinal cord had been hit by a bullet and she would never ever walk again. As she lay in her hospital bed a couple of days after the incident, she sent a message through a friend to the shooter and the message was simple. She said, tell him that I forgive him. In offering forgiveness to this malicious young man, young Melissa stands in the shadow of the saints of old. She stands the shadow of Joseph, who forgave his brothers, of Moses, who forgave the people in their rebellion, of David, who forgave Shimei, of Stephen, who forgave those who were stoning him to death. How could a person forgive one who took their ability to walk, one who took the lives of their friends? How could that happen? Forgiving painful wrongs suffered is simply what God's people do. And we forgive not because we are intrinsically more merciful or kind or generous than others, but we forgive because we know that God, in His infinite mercy, has forgiven us. And we are a people who simply cannot get over that amazing truth. The bullet that sped through Melissa's spinal cord paralyzed her legs, but it did not paralyze her soul. Her soul was fully alive to God. 
It did not create a bitterness and anger that would weigh her spirit down throughout the course of her life and darken it. Melissa chose to forgive because she had been forgiven. Have you ever suffered a wrong that hurt you deeply? Of course you have. I don't need to ask for a show of hands because everyone's hands would be up. It is not easy to forgive those who hurt us. C.S. Lewis writes, Forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something to forgive. And isn't that the truth? It's a wonderful concept. We hear messages on forgiveness, poems on forgiveness. But then when we are called to forgive, oh, that doesn't sound so beautiful anymore. A fight ensues, a fight within our soul. You see, our flesh gives us a thousand reasons why our circumstances are different from others and why our circumstances create this exception to the law of forgiveness. Our flesh, it wants to narrow the meaning of forgiveness. It doesn't mean to clear the slate so that there is an open pathway to relationship. It means that we just simply play nice. We may smile. We're not going to take revenge. We're not going to say angry words. That's what forgiveness is. But, oh, our flesh deceives us. The central idea here in Matthew 18 is that forgiven people forgive people. That's what forgiven people do. And it's rooted in an action of God upon our soul prior to being hurt. And so the application that Jesus draws for those of us who have been forgiven through His cross is simple. Forgive others when they sin against you because God forgave you when you sinned against Him. And furthermore, your sin is infinite against Him. And and every other person's sin against us is tiny in comparison So we open up our Bibles to Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. If you're taking notes this morning, and I encourage you certainly to do so, uh, all good pastors do that, and I'm sure Daniel does that as well. We want to first look at the duty of forgiveness. We must, uh, the question is, must we forgive others? And the answer that the Scripture gives us is an unequivocal yes. Yes, we must. It is a duty. Now, our flesh, in asking the question, must we really forgive others, our flesh would say, no, I don't have an obligation to forgive others who hurt me. That, that wouldn't be just. It wouldn't be right. They don't deserve my kindness, and it would only encourage them to hurt me more. And so, no, we must not. In fact, our flesh clenches itself hard as it says, I will not forgive. And yet, as we read the Bible, few Christian duties are pressed more thoroughly, more often, more forcefully against our soul than this duty to forgive. So central is forgiveness to God's people that Jesus taught in His model prayer on how we ought to pray that we include this duty to forgive others right in the middle of our prayers. As a model for praying, Jesus says, here's how you ought to pray. And right in the middle of that model prayer, He says, Father, forgive us our sins, even as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, that's rather remarkable. For if we hold on to bitterness and resentment while we pray that prayer, do we understand what we're praying? We're actually praying a curse upon our life if we pray the way Jesus taught us to pray, and yet hold on to bitterness, refuse to forgive another. We're praying, Father, forgive us just as, in the same way, forgive others. So if we don't forgive others, we're saying, Father, don't forgive me. 
It's interesting because Jesus makes a bit of a commentary about that part of his prayer. He doesn't make commentary on any other part of that prayer as he teaches it. But immediately after giving that model prayer, he makes a commentary on that particular line. This is what he says in Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Serious business. It's not a trifling thing to the Christian life. It is serious. I understand how our flesh revolts against this idea of forgiveness toward those who hurt us. Our flesh is a powerful enemy, and it hardens at the very thought of this. I experience it deeply, just as I believe you do as well. And our flesh will pull us into the areas of resentment, and we won't even really understand how deep that resentment goes or how deep that bitterness is because our hearts are deceitful. They deceive us as to the nature of our sin and the presence of our sin. We have to make a decision when we are wronged or when we are hurt. We have to make a decision regarding what we are going to do. Will we forgive or will we hold on and refuse to forgive? Now, keep in mind that Matthew 18 is a teaching that Jesus gives to His disciples. In other words, I believe this teaching about forgiveness is absolutely impossible unless you are a disciple of Jesus, unless you have been forgiven. The whole basis of forgiveness toward others is built up off of the idea that we are a people who have been forgiven. So if you are not among those who have been forgiven, this teaching is not directed towards you. It's directed toward His disciples, His redeemed ones. In Chapter 18, verse 1, the context is given. The disciples come and they ask this question, tell us, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus has been talking about this kingdom of heaven. Who is going to be the greatest in this realm, in this sphere? And so Jesus takes a little child and he pulls this child close to himself. He says, truly, I say to you, unless you become like a child, unless you turn, and I like the New American Standard Version, it says, unless you are converted and become like children, You won't even enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be the greatest there. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So when does this duty to forgive others begin? And the answer is at our conversion. It's at the moment when we turn, when we are converted and become like children, and we receive the life of God in our soul. And that's what happens. We are born anew. God in His great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope, Peter would later write. It's remarkable that God places His own life in us, and as He does so, He plants His DNA in us so that we now have the opportunity to become like Him. And as the father of this family, He sets the tone, He sets the stage that we might look like Him and live like Him and honor Him. And so outsiders who don't have this DNA are not able to live as children of the king. But we who have been converted, who have repented and humbled ourselves before God and received His life through His Son, we now have His DNA. Our former DNA in Adam, it was filled with selfishness and pride, but in Christ now it's filled with mercy and love and righteousness and peace. So we have this new identity to live out. I love the way Apostle Paul talks about this new identity and how it's being lived out inside of us in Ephesians 5. He says, therefore, since we have this new identity, since we've been made alive in Christ, 
Therefore, be imitators of God, since we've been given the ability to imitate God, to live like Him. Since we have been given His DNA, therefore, let's live out His attributes, His character in our life. Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, Matthew 18, it's it's all about what believers do, what God's people do in the face of sin. So we're still living in a broken world. There's aspects of the kingdom that we enjoy right now. We enjoy that He is King and we can fellowship with Him and we can worship with Him and walk with Him and serve Him. But there's aspects of the kingdom that are yet to be realized. So we're, we're still living as children of the kingdom of God in the presence of the kingdom of this world that's broken and filled with darkness and sin. And so what do we do? How do we respond to the sin as we live in this present world? And so verses 6 through 11 tell us that we are rightly concerned that we would not bring sin into the family, <laughs> that we would not begin to close out the light of God's glory through sin. So we're right about being concerned over sin. Verses 12 and 14 of Matthew 18 then teach us that we should seek after brothers and sisters who are pursuing sin. That's out of love for them, recognizing that sin's going to destroy their soul. And then verses 15 through 19 teach us that we have a duty to forgive, a duty to forgive and to restore brothers and sisters who listen to God's Word back to fellowship, to be reconciled. So in verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to him, if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Now, it's really hard to experience hurt and pain of another person's sin, and then when they listen, uh, to simply forgive, <laughs> to be restored in relationship. Our flesh loves to say something like, oh, I'll forgive you, but you know, I really don't care if I ever see you again. Our flesh loves to say things like that. Again, it's deceitful. So when Jesus says that kingdom living means that we restore to family relationship those who hurt us deeply, Peter has a natural question. It's hard. He recognizes it. So he asks the question, well, how many times do we have to do that? How many times before finally we can cut someone loose and say, I don't have to be in relationship with this person anymore? And that's the question Peter asks then in verse 21. And that's, we're going to look at the extent of forgiveness. How often must we forgive others? So Peter says to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then Peter actually offers Jesus a potential answer, up to seven times. Now, it's an honest question. I want you to notice two assumptions that Peter makes as he asks this question, though. The first assumption behind the question that Peter asks after Jesus teaches about forgiveness is that Peter assumes that the major problem in God's family will be his brothers sinning against him and not his sinning against his brothers. So he doesn't ask the question, well, what do I do when I sin against my brothers? How do I approach them? That, that would have been a, a humble thing to ask. But he assumes that he's not ever going to be the problem. And that's what we always do, don't we? We don't, we're going to assume if there's problems in the family, it's because other people. People are selfish and prideful and, and bullheaded and all those other kind of things. But we're not going to be the problem. <laughs> oh. Well, Peter, as you know, the story became a problem, didn't he? How different we approach this issue of forgiveness if we recognize our own sin. If we recognize its depth, its pervasive nature, its strength in our lives. Lord, how often do you think my brother would forgive me 
when I sin against them. The second uh, assumption that Peter makes is he assumes that God sets some kind of limits on the duty to forgive. And this assumption is so strong, as we noted earlier, that Peter actually offers Jesus an answer to the question he just asked Jesus. He says, up to seven times. In other words, in his understanding, he knows that there is an emotional cost to forgiveness, and he knows there's only so much that a person can actually give in forgiving others. That's his idea. And so he says, surely there's a limit to the emotional pain that I must bear in order to be reconciled with others. Do we not think the same way? Do we not think, you know, I, I don't think that I can forgive this person one more time. I don't think I can do it. Our flesh would convince us that there is a limit. Now let's give Peter some credit here. Peter exceeds the limits that are laid down by the most respective religious teachers of his day. The Pharisees demanded that every worshiper would forgive others as evidence of personal righteousness. So they wanted to lift up the community standards. They recognized the, the, the value of mercy. And so they also taught about the need to forgive. But in their teaching, many of them, for instance, required that people would forgive the same person if they committed the same sin twice on the same day. So in other words, if you have one person committing the same sin, hurting you twice on the same day, you still need to forgive them. But after that, you're free uh, to respond any way you choose to respond. There was one rabbi uh, in the first century by the name of Joseph ben Judah who was even more magnanimous. He said, if a brother sins against you once, forgive him. If he sins against you twice, forgive him. Then he says, and if he sins against you three times, forgive him. And if he sins against you four times, do not forgive him. <laughs> that was the teaching of the religious leaders. They, they all thought there has to be a limit because no one wants to be a doormat. And aren't you encouraging sin by forgiving sin in others? And so there's a limit, and they set the limit at two, they set the limit at three. And so Peter now, remember earlier the issue that they were dealing with was who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And they all wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom. So when Peter says, how many times should we forgive our brother? And then he gives the answer up to seven times. Here's what he's expecting Jesus to answer. Peter, you merciful man, you. You are the greatest in the kingdom. <laughs> you took the most merciful rabbi standard of three. You doubled it and you added one. You are the greatest in the kingdom. No one could have been more shocked by the answer that Jesus gave in verse 22. I do not say seven times. Peter, you're wrong. <laughs> Incorrect. I say 70 times 7. Jesus blows the cap off the idea of limits to mercy. God's mercy has no limits in its expression toward us. And therefore, His mercy has no limits in its expression as it flows through us. And our fleshly mind, again, begins to chafe, it begins to harden. What, where's my protection? I need to set boundaries to my forgiveness. If I don't set boundaries to my forgiveness, then I'll be exposed to all kinds of hurt. The spiritual danger toward our own soul comes when we set boundaries on forgiveness. Forgiveness actually is our spiritual protection. 
It protects us from the sins that truly would destroy our soul, like resentment and bitterness and anger and wrath and malice and vengeance. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying that at 491 sins, we can then lay into the person. He's saying 70 times 7 means there is no limit to the mercy that God would have you express to others. In Luke 17, Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in one day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. He's arguing for the, the, the fullness, the infinite nature of the duty to forgive. You see, Jesus argues that God transforms our heart so that there is no place for resentment and revenge. Our flesh again protests. But if you understood my circumstance, uh, this is the exception. I know that this is true generally for most people, but in my circumstance, this is the exception. You don't understand what they did and how it impacted my life. Beloved, I can only share with you, this is Jesus teaching about forgiveness. Jesus. And if there's anyone who knows the depth of the hurt that other people wrongly, willfully, maliciously brings against a soul, it is Jesus. And yet on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Even as he's being mocked, spit upon, crucified, Father, forgive them. Okay, 70 times 7. But why? Why? Why must we forgive? Why not hold others accountable for their sin in the way that our flesh would want to hold them accountable to sin? Peter needs some convincing that 70 times 7 is the right answer, and that's why Jesus tells this wonderful story. The motivation of forgiveness. Why must we forgive others? Simply because God has forgiven us such an infinite debt. So verse 23, Jesus tells this story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. He has all these servants who are indebted to him. And he comes to one who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, this is an unfathomable amount of debt. It, it's so large so as to be absolutely ridiculous. Uh, it's an absurd figure. It would require one person working 165,000 years to accumulate 10,000 talents worth of money. Think of that. The average worker working 165, yep, that's right, 1,000 years to accumulate 10,000 talents. To give an idea of, of the magnitude of 10,000 talents, Galilee, where Jesus is teaching this message, is a pretty wealthy province in Israel. And uh, its total annual revenue of Galilee, the total annual revenue of Galilee, all the buying and selling in Galilee, amounted to 300 talents. So you take the total annual revenue, 300, and this servant's debt, 10,000 talents. It's a ridiculous figure. Jesus makes it a ridiculous figure because he wants us to see the magnitude of our own sin. This is not the kind of debt you get into because you watch too much QVC. <laughs> this is the kind of debt because, that you get into because you're a wicked person. You were doing something really illegal, really wrong to get in 10,000 talents of debt. Jesus wants us to know his view of our sin. He wants us to know that our sin, in reference to God, is the 10,000 talent kind of debt, kind of sin. 
And we don't think ourselves that way. You know, it's interesting when we ask ourselves the question, who am I in the story? Really important question to ask anytime, especially when we read the parables. Because uh, inevitably, if we don't ask that question, we're going to place ourselves in the story as the wrong person. So when you read the story, who are you in the story? And here's where I am, my admission. I'm the fellow servants who are really indignant and mad at the guy who refused to forgive. That's who I am. <laughs> and that's where we often place ourselves. We're the people, who, and we're, that means when we listen to a message on forgiveness, we, ah, this person needs to listen to this message. We maybe nudge the person next to us. Yeah, it would be really wrong. Who does Jesus want us to be in the sermon? Who is, who is Peter in the sermon? He's this guy that has 10,000 talents of debt. Jesus wants us there, right there, in that person's seat, because that's where we are. We are limitlessly indebted to our great king on account of our sin. And Jesus' view of our sin is that our sin has amassed a debt so great toward God that we could never, ever repay it. And yet, in our pride and arrogance, we think we can. Look at verse 26. So the servant, it's, 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 it's the day of accounting has arrived. <laughs> Pay me. The servant falls on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the truth is, never, not in 100,000 lifetimes, would this man be able to repay this kind of debt. Never, never. He couldn't even begin to touch it. We underestimate the debt of our sin, and we overestimate the worth of our good works. And that's what this guy is saying. I think I could do it. He didn't even stop to think, how much do I really owe? And how much do I make? And how would I begin? We do not understand our debt until we look at it in light of the cross of Jesus. You see, the reason why any of us have this debt removed is because we have a king who came and paid the debt for us. And... Jesus has taken on that 10,000-talent debt of ours on his body so that we could be free. I want you to notice that this king, he doesn't set up a payment plan. He says, okay, let's start off with maybe 100 denarii a, a month, and let's see what we can do. Because there's nothing that could touch that debt. It's so large that it, could, that, that it continues to accrue. The interest accrues greater than any kind of possible deposit could match it. And so what does the king do here in this story? The king, it says, forgave him. No payment plan. You know, a lot of believers, a lot of people, when they hear the gospel, they want to be set up on a payment plan. Okay, Lord, I know I've sinned against you. What do I need to do to pay that off? I know I need Jesus, but I also need to work it off. No, he says, here's what happens. I take that certificate of debt, and, I, and the king rips it up so that this person who owed 10,000 talents of debt is completely exonerated, completely cleared of that debt. And that's what happens when a person comes to faith in Christ. We have this huge debt, and God takes that debt, and He pays it for us, and He rips it up so that never will that debt ever, ever, ever be laid against our account. That's remarkable. We begin to start paying up. No, you don't understand. It's been a gift. Anything you give to me, it's worthless. it's, It's actually a slap in my face because you're not realizing what I've given to you. I just simply want you to thank me. I want you to live to the, for the praise of my glory now, because I did something for you that if I had not given it to you, do you know what would have happened? Not only you, but your wife and your children would have been destroyed. Think of the joy that should have been this guy. My wife and my children and my home and my life, everything is restored back the way it was before I began accruing debt. Wow. 
The psalmist understood the depth of his sin when he wrote, writes in Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Whew, on the day of judgment, who'd be able to stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you might be feared. The debt is completely canceled. And so the psalmist would say in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Let me ask you. The gospel of Jesus, it's good news, but it first requires that you see your debt to God, your sin, as a 10,000 talent debt. I have to ask you, do you? Do you realize that your sin will keep you away from God and out of his heaven forever and ever? And then when you come to that realization that, yeah, my sin is so wicked and so awful that there is nothing I can do to pay it, and that I deserve to be thrown out into this prison where I will suffer forever and ever. Have you come to Christ Jesus and said, Lord, I need your mercy. Have mercy upon my soul according to your mercy as given to me through your, your death and burial and resurrection. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, never, ever, ever, are your sins forgiven by God? So why should we forgive 70 times 7? Why? Because God, in His infinite mercy, has forgiven us. There's no other reason. I can't say you should forgive that person who hurts you because they might become a better person for it or your relationship might be, might be renewed because you know, they've, they've deserved it, because they've changed because they, they recognize they were wrong and they wish they could take it back, but they can't. No, here, here's the reason. There's only one reason why you should forgive 70 times 7, and it's this. You have been forgiven an infinite debt by God. That's why. Our failure to forgive a brother is a refusal to recognize and enjoy God's forgiveness. So then verse 31 his fellow servants saw what had taken place, and they're greatly distressed. And by the way, damage from lack of forgiveness, it not only damages the person who we refuse to forgive, and the world doesn't need any more pain inflicted by us upon anyone else. So it damages that person when we refuse to forgive them. It damages our own soul, but it also damages the community of faith. It damages God's people. These fellow servants, it says they were greatly distressed. Our failure to forgive a brother pulls the whole family of God into distress and into misery. We, we like to think that our refusal to forgive, it, it's going to be isolated, it's just going to affect me and maybe the other person. But no, it, everyone sees this and, and they're distressed as a result of it. That's what bitterness does. It just begins to grow like a weed in the family of God. So what happens next in the story? The consequences of refusal. What happens if I don't forgive others? So it's, I recognize it's an obligation, it's a duty I recognize that the extent of it, that, that it's, it, there's never a point where I can say, okay, it's now okay for me not to forgive. I recognize the motivations because God has forgiven me so much. But what happens if I don't forgive others? Look at verse 32. So the master summoned him, said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. 
And so also, and listen to this, now Jesus is away from the story, and now he gives his concluding statement, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now who asked the question? Peter. Who does verse 36 apply to? Peter. This is the disciple Peter. This is the committed one. And yet listen to the weight of Jesus' word. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, Peter, that includes you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The Puritans had a saying, he that demands mercy and shows none ruins the bridge over which he himself must pass. And that's true. A refusal to forgive a brother is an act of wickedness against a gracious king and against his kingdom. He calls him wicked, not because... And notice why he's wicked. He's not wicked because of the original debt. All right, That's not why he's still wicked. So there was great, undoubtedly great wickedness as a result of the 10,000 talent debt that caused that debt. But that's been removed. Now he's wicked because he refuses to forgive his brother. That's where his wickedness comes from. In other words, Jesus is saying it's absolutely outrageous. It's outrageous for us to receive mercy from the king, infinite mercy from the king, and not give limited mercy back. In comparison, other sins against us are small and minute. It's interesting because um, this, this fellow servant, he pleads with the same words in verse 29, have patience with me and I will pay you. Same words that the forgiven servant used toward the king. Have patient, and yet those words should have been sort of uh, used to remind him, oh, I just said these words just a short time ago to the king, and the king forgave me. Now this person's giving me the same words, have patience with me, only this time this person actually could repay. In comparison, 100 denarii to 10,000 talents, there is no comparison. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand about anyone else's, regardless of how deep and significant it is. Because God is holy, our sins against Him carry an infinitely steeper debt. Because we are sinning against the infinite holiness of God. And He's saying 10,000 talents, that's our debt to God versus 100 denarii in this horizontal plane, not even worthy to be compared I want you to notice the two sides of God's nature right here in the story. On one hand, it says he was moved with compassion. On the other hand, it says he was moved with wrath. Which is God? Is he compassionate or is he filled with wrath? And the Scripture's answer is yes. (laughs) Yes. And that God's mercy and God's wrath are never in conflict. And Jesus doesn't see them in conflict. That's why he tells this story where God is presented as a God of mercy and also a God of wrath right in the same story. The father here is angry that the debtor did not recognize and honor the cost that the father paid to free this servant from his debt. A person's unwillingness to forgive brings God's displeasure. Now someone asked the question, well, Pastor, is is this telling us that this person who refused to forgive his brother is in hell, eternal judgment. And here's where you have uh, different opinions from really great Bible scholars. Some people say, yes, it, it tells us that this is a reference to eternal judgment. 
that when we refuse to forgive another person their sins, we are giving evidence that we really have not received the mercy of God in our life. And that, that lack of forgiveness should awaken us to this, this condition of our soul that we have not yet received God's mercy. I think there's something to that idea. But others say, no, this is not so much about eternal judgment, so much it is about severe discipline. That God will severely discipline His own after they've received His mercy and refused to give mercy to others. Now, I don't think Jesus' point is to answer that question directly. I think Jesus' point is this. Listen, you don't want to be that kind of servant. (laughs) It is a bad thing to experience what that servant's going to experience. The servant who receives mercy and then doesn't give it, really bad things happen to them. That they experience God's severe displeasure in very tangible ways. You know, we read this story, and again, when we read ourselves outside of it, we ask, well, who could possibly behave this way, the way that servant does? And the answer is, we do. If you are a believer in Christ who have received God's infinite mercy, we do. We act this way when we refuse to forgive. You know, uh, our flesh, it's strong, and it's going to wage war against this issue of forgiveness. And I, I believe practically this morning that the Holy Spirit is a real person, and He applies His Word in real, direct ways. And I think for a lot of you, if not for all of you, there are people whom the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind. You keep wanting to shove them out and bring in other people who are easier to forgive. Say, <laughs> so, okay, I can forgive this person, forgive, but there's one person... <laughs> that you're holding on to, this bitterness, anger, and you just keep trying to shove that person out of the way of this passage of Scripture. I, I, you know how I know that's true for some of you? Because that's true often for me. Right? That's true often for me. Let me tell you a little story about the Holy Spirit's working. There's a time when, um, this was years ago, when a, uh, a friend sinned against me. I think it was a Monday night. And this friend had, had sinned against me before, forgiven them. They really, really hurt me on this Monday night. And after that, I was angry. And in my anger, I didn't want to forgive, but the Holy Spirit kept saying, Rich, you've got to forgive this person. Forgive him quickly. No, I don't want to. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of bowing up my heart and getting hard. No, I don't want to. You know, I don't deserve it. Maybe... Maybe two weeks from now, I might. I wanted to hold on, just feast and feed a little bit on this resentment and anger. I didn't want to release that so quickly. You got to forgive him. No, I don't want to. I went to bed that night. Holy Spirit said, Rich, you know, I forgive this. No, I don't want to forgive that person. I woke up the next morning. You know, one of the first thoughts was Holy Spirit's voice Rich, you need to forgive this person. No, I still don't want to forgive this person. I had an early morning breakfast where I was discipling a a man, friend, who uh, teached him how to be like Jesus, (laughs) right? And so we get there at 6 o'clock in the morning at this restaurant. And all the way on, my, my whole drive over there, the Holy Spirit kept talking to me. And I kept turning up the music and changing stations trying to get the Holy Spirit's voice out of my head. You need to forgive this. No, I don't want to forgive this person. I get down, I get to this restaurant, and my friend's already there. He's sitting in the booth, and I sit down. And, and this, this, this the, you're going to think that I made up, make up this story. It's not, I'm not making up any part of the story. I sit down. We didn't say good morning. We didn't straight exchange niceties. I just sat down. I'm about ready to say good morning to him. And he says, uh, Rich, I have a question for you. Oh, okay, great. What do you do when someone sins against you and you don't want to forgive them? 
That's what he asked me. <laughs> I looked at him, I must have surely like, well. But then I composed myself, said, well, here's what you do. It took you a few verses, you know, and I, I gave him a nice lesson on what you do. <laughs> I was too prideful to admit to, what, to him what happened that day. Later, I did admit to him. I said, oh, let me tell you what happened. But that morning, I was still like, well, let me still put on my pastor's face, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. I, I don't know who's hurt you or sinned against you. I know this text has powerful implications, powerful implications to bless you. I would urge you two things before we leave. First, when you hear a message about you need to forgive your brother sinned against you, it's easy to get into a, well, say a works or law orientation. Well, I just need to do it. No, here's the biggest problem right here. Here's the, here's the issue. You need to enter more deeply into the forgiveness that God has provided for you in the cross. See, that's the whole point. This guy didn't forgive because he didn't understand how much he'd been forgiven. It wasn't that this guy didn't tell himself, I need to forgive, I need to forgive, I need to forgive. This guy had forgotten. And what I want to encourage you to do, if you're having a hard time forgiving a brother or sister, Enter more deeply into the mercy of God provided for you on the cross. That's where it begins. Because when we are humbled by the magnitude of our debt and the amazing mercy of God, guess what? I just want to show mercy. Because God has shown mercy to me. And then I would urge you to yield your will to the Lord as He shows you His infinite mercy. And simply obey. Forgiveness, it's not an emotion. It's an act of the will. Recognizing, Lord, you've given me so much mercy. And I'm going to decide to be, in, to be a conduit. To be a means through which your mercy extends to others. For the praise of your name. We're going to close here uh, with just some quietness before we sing our, this last song. And I'm just going to play just, to, just a, about a minute or so. But I, I, I want you to to deal with the Lord and the Lord to deal with you now before you leave. Uh, as the Holy Spirit's brought to mind circumstances, people, persons, it might be a son or a daughter, it might be a brother, sister, a husband, wife, it might be a fellow church member or a neighbor. I don't know who it is, but as the Lord would, would bring that person to mind, just talk to the Lord about this. Enter deeper into the cross, the mercy of God. And then make a decision to obey him. Let's pray to pray quietly. Father in heaven, I would pray that you would open up the hearts of anyone here who has not yet received your mercy. Let it begin there. Being freely forgiven. Father, I pray that they look to you in faith and say, God, I've sinned against you an infinite degree. In the cross of Jesus, there is an infinite mercy that I need. I repent of my sin. I turn to Jesus, my Savior, who paid that debt for me so that I could be clean and forgiven. All my debt and all of its consequences rolled away. 
Father, I'd pray for those of us who've received this great mercy from you. Father, may every day of our life be just a life filled with wonder. I can't understand why you would be so merciful to us. Why would you do such a thing? Father, may that truth grow more deep, bring us a humble, soft heart, a wonder and a worship that would allow us to express your life to everyone we meet, especially those whom we meet who hurt us and who sin against us. Father, the power of forgiveness would be ours through the resurrection of Jesus. We pray this.